Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God from today's epistle for the third Sunday after the Epiphany, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where St. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is God's word. I don't know about you, but I have very, very little interest in the drama surrounding the royal family. Some of you may enjoy that sort of thing. It is not my cup of tea, as the Brits would say. Indeed, they've been in the news a lot lately. You can't turn on the news or go to the homepage of your favorite news site and not see something about them. Of course, just a couple months ago, the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth II, died. And I will say, I do have a fair amount of respect for her and her faith and her sense of duty in a time where faith and duty are all the more difficult to carry out publicly. The one, of course, in the news lately is Prince Harry and the release of his memoir entitled Spare. He's been on a lot of different talk shows and done a lot of interviews and talked about a lot of that drama surrounding his family, specifically his father and his brother and his wife. The title Spare, of course, comes from the fact that when he was born, he was a spare heir. His brother stood in line before him, and yet even now, the more babies that William and Kate have, the farther down the pecking order Harry falls. It might be the thing you kind of enjoy following, and I won't begrudge you that. I think probably, though, many of us, if we don't feel a sense of revulsion at kind of the bickering and the fighting that we see playing out in the media then I think we all perhaps are rather saddened by it. To see a family so broken, so bitter, so divided. That, of course, is nothing new among the royals, and not just in this era of 24-7 media coverage and paparazzi following the royals everywhere they go, Indeed, maybe we're more aware of it because we see and hear of more of it. But you can read through the pages of history and see the division and the brokenness and the backbiting that exists in royal families, not just in England, but anywhere there is royalty. Indeed, even the royal families of Holy Scripture 
We're not immune to that division. Take, for example, King David, who went to war with his own son, Absalom, because Absalom, thinking his father was too old to rule and too inept, ought to place himself upon the throne. Yeah, there's a lot of dividing, dividing and fighting in royal families. And so it would also seem in the family of King Jesus. The royal family above all royal families. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords. There ought to not be division in his family, but indeed, St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians to address that very matter. Last week's epistle was Paul's sort of invocation and blessing and greeting that he speaks to the Corinthians. And now in verse 10, he gets right to the heart of the matter. Divisions. You know, I pastorally find a little bit of self-righteous comfort in the book of 1 Corinthians. If for no other reason that no matter how bad I, I as a pastor might screw things up, it would take a lot to be the quote-unquote hot mess that Corinth was. This was a congregation with problems. In our epistle for today, Paul lays out the factions that exist. Some of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Apparently, whichever apostle or evangelist the people in the church identified with as having brought them into the faith, they considered them as part of a faction belonging to that leader. It would be kind of like if you were in a church where they had several different pastors and some people were loyal to one pastor and others were loyal to another and more yet to an even another person. But the divisions didn't stop there. Read through 1 Corinthians in its entirety and you will find a congregation that by outward appearances is completely falling apart. Sexual immorality that exists among the people in the congregation. Bickering and fighting over the Lord's Supper. Jealousy between members over what spiritual gifts some have and others don't. Even to the point, as Paul gets to the end of the letter, where the Corinthians are on the verge of denying the resurrection of the dead. Before Paul addresses all these many and varied issues. He starts off bluntly and to the point. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the sort of unity Paul is talking about, well, it's first of all, not the sort of unity where Christians just sweep everything under the rug and pretend their divisions don't exist. 
That would be what a lot of liberal Christianity has done, where you have different opinions on whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not Jesus is risen from the dead, whether or not God truly created heaven and earth. They just say, those things don't matter. Let's all just agree to disagree. That is not unity. If that were indeed the case, Paul would have had no need to write the rest of his letter. He would have just said, get along, stop fighting, and left it at that. Paul is not also talking about some unrealistic unity where people agree on every single minute, inane detail. How appropriate as we prepare to have a voters meeting after church where, granted, we will disagree on sorts of things that the congregational meeting, what projects we ought to do in the building. Churches, you know, historically, it's kind of a running joke that said they'll fight over things like the color of the carpet. Christians can disagree on the color of carpeting or little matters like that. But they ought not be divided in the things of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus came to proclaim in our gospel. There is no place for those divisions. And isn't it interesting? I will use every opportunity to capitalize on this that I can. That Paul says here twice actually. I appeal to you brothers. Now, who Paul is talking to here, there's a little bit of mystery around that. He could be talking to the pastors of the congregation there in Corinth. The letter could have been written to them that they might take his words and instructions and share them with the people. But that word brothers could also, and I think more likely refers to, the entirety of the congregation. Because he talks about the divisions that exist among the entirety of the congregation. That word, brothers, is collective for all the men and women of the congregation. And yet he does call them brothers. Because they are, indeed, as you have probably guessed already, family. The church is the family of God, in which we are indeed brothers and sisters with one another, with Christ as our brother and God the Father over all of us. And in this royal family with King Jesus, there ought not be division. And that division is not resolved by sweeping everything under the rug. And it is not resolved by agreeing on everything down to carpet color. That unity, of course, comes from God's own holy word. Which unites us in Christ, the same Lord into which all of us 
are baptized. Paul himself appeals to that word for unity in that Corinthian congregation. He says, towards the end of chapter 1, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Unity among the people of God, among this royal family, can only exist where the word of God reigns and rules supreme over all things. Where we as disciples ourselves listen to the voice of Jesus and follow. For when Jesus built his church by calling disciples... He did it with his voice. In our gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The voice of Jesus still calls out to us by means of his holy word. Do we listen? I'm not talking. About 15 to 20 minutes of a sermon once a week. I'm talking about do we live and dwell in this holy word. Which unites us in Christ our brother and our king. In which God speaks to us the message of his cross. Where his son Jesus atoned for the sins of the whole world. That word Paul reminds us is Folly, foolishness, nonsense, bunk to the world. But he tells us they're perishing. They regard it as nonsense, but they're dying. Not just physically, but eternally destined for death. To us who are being saved... That word of the cross is the power of God. And it unites us in Christ. As Paul urged the Corinthians to do. The word of God, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters needs to be more than a little siesta during your week into the church. And God knows what goes on here in the church is the most important part of our week where he dwells among us, forgives us our sins, and feeds us the very body and blood of Christ. But if you walk out the doors this morning and that's the last time you reflect on the word of God, read the word of God, hear the word of God until next Sunday or a couple Sundays from now or a few months from now, whenever you come back to hear that word. That's a recipe for death. The ancient Israelites 
received the word of the Lord through Moses, his commands, and they were told to take that word and bind it upon their foreheads and upon their hands that it should be on the doorposts of their homes. There are some in the Orthodox Jewish community who take that literally, wearing little phylacteries on their heads with little scrolls inside of them and on their hands. But it was, of course, figurative language. The word of the Lord should be on your mind and in your heart, in your ears, and on your lips all the time. We should teach it to the children that they would have it in their ears and on their lips and in their minds and in their hearts all the time. When the word of the cross that saves us reigns and rules in such a way, we are united. We are one. The same mind, the same judgment. As the psalmist says, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy heard in Isaiah chapter 9, our Old Testament reading for today. Where it said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is that light. And the word shines that light into our lives. There is indeed darkness, brokenness, and division in our world. Even greater than the problems to which royal families succumb and end up in the news. Brokenness in body. Brokenness in spirit. Jesus came to heal and unite and to restore. Let the word of Christ, dear brothers and sisters, dwell in you richly. And let us rejoice that he makes us one by the word that delivers he himself to us this very day. And God grant that that word would dwell in our hearts and minds and in our lives day after day until he comes to claim us as members of his kingdom of glory on the last day. Be united, dear friends, family, brothers and sisters, in this word and in this Christ, now and always. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.